Good morning. Let's come back together. If you're in the worship center, let's find our seats. In the gym, find your seats. If you're at home, that's up to you. That's um, Find your couch, recline, get your coffee, and um, we're good to go. Today we finish 1 Thessalonians. And, and then we'll get, jump into 2 Thessalonians, but this is good. Have you noticed that as you've Zoomed, how many of you have done some Zoom conferences or Zoom meetings? Yeah, most of you, or Google Meets, or you know, whatever it is, something like that. One of the things that's developing is a, a whole etiquette for how do you conduct business, how do you carry on conversations in this way? And one of the things I keep hearing about is how do you say goodbye? You know, have you noticed that? It, it's like, it, it's hard to say goodbye, because if you, if you just click end meeting for all, you, you fight guilt. You, you fight this guilt like you have just cut those people out of your life. And they are probably at home crying because you ended the meeting and can no longer talk to them. Now, I, I know it's not that bad, but I have noticed that as we're ending Zoom meetings, it's like goodbye, 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 goodbye. And it just goes, you know, who is going to end the meeting? Somebody step up. Well, we get to the end of 1 Thessalonians and Paul has to say goodbye. And he's saying goodbye to a church that he loves, a church that's on his heart because he started them and started training them. He founded the church. These are his sons and daughters in the Lord. And then he had to leave. He was ripped away by circumstances. And now he's writing to make sure they're okay and to do some correcting and to to really come alongside them to encourage them. And we get to today, and we're going to pick up a a few verses that we didn't get to last week, and then we'll talk about his goodbye. And I've titled it A Good Goodbye, or you might want to say A Long Goodbye, but I didn't want to steal a movie title or something like that. Um, Because he has some things to say at the end just to encourage them in, in not only his relationship with them, but in their relationship with each other. And so today is just a real encouraging passage. Of, of how do we think about each other after we say goodbye or when we're apart or how do we just live in community even w- during the week when we're not around each other. And so there's some things that we can learn. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll pick up some verses, like I said, that we, we didn't get complete last week. And then we'll look at the goodbye. But I just want to start reading for now at verse 16 so we get the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. And we'll take it to the end of the chapter. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's bow our heads and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal His Word to us. Lord God, as we come to Your Word today, I pray that You would encourage us. And Lord, give us some ideas for how to be the church, how to come alongside each other, Lord, based on Paul's example here in Your Holy Scripture. Thank You and convict us and encourage us with Your Word. In Your name, amen. 
So we go back to the beginning of that section. You remember that we were in a, a, a series of checklist items, right? Where Paul is giving us, or he's giving the Thessalonians, but the Holy Spirit is giving us, okay, here's some parts of life that pleases God. And we had talked about um, regarding church leadership, and we talked about regarding each other, and then regarding our own personal walks with God. Internally, how do we handle hardship? And so last week we looked at the three commands for how to handle hardship and circumstances internally. Rejoice always, so joy in choosing to trust God. Praying continually, continually talking with God. And we talked about that being a, a dependence on God, a constant conversation, but also just living in light of His presence, that He's with us every step of the day. And we can have this ongoing conversation with the God of the universe. That is incredible. And that should bring all kinds of comfort and encouragement. So joy, prayer, and then gratitude we saw in verse 18 were to intentionally give thanks in all circumstances. Not for all circumstances, but in all circumstances because we know who is God and who is on the throne and that hasn't changed. And so we have this wonderful assurance of of regarding our walk with God and regarding circumstances around us, how do we live? And then we move on now to verses 19 through 22. And this is where we left off last week. And this is the last set of instructions in this checklist for how to please God. And this doesn't include everything for how to please God, but just some of the things that were on Paul's heart for this church. And we see that this is regarding the Holy Spirit. And what do they do with the Holy Spirit? What do they do with worship in the church and ministry in the church and, and how to support God's work? And so this would be sort of the ministry aspect of our, our core values. And in verse 19, Paul just dives right in. He says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. So in your notes regarding the Holy Spirit, we are not to quench. Do not quench the Spirit. And that's number four there. And quench is the idea of, of putting out a fire. And, and actually, the, the word literally means putting out a fire, which is really beautiful. Because remember on Pentecost, how did the Holy Spirit come? As, as tongues of fire over the head. And they would have gotten that illustration and understood that. And he says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not put out a fire. And the imagery is if you're camping and you have this campfire, and what do you always have to do at the end of the day? You have to make sure the fire's out. Isn't that what we usually have you do on the young adult camping trip? Someone, so, or if, if they're up late, we're like, put out the fire, take water, and you keep pouring water on it, pouring water on it until the very last ember is out, and there no, is no chance of burning down the Sierras, for instance. That's the word he uses here. And he says, do not quench the Spirit. Do not put out the fire of the Spirit. And the context here is community. So the idea is don't put out the fire of the Holy Spirit in someone else around you. And, and what an incredible instruction, because if we think about it, we can fall into this very easily. Especially if we've known Christ a long time and, and we've been in the faith a long time. Someone, someone comes to know the Lord and they're brand new in the faith. They're like, we can do this for God and we can do this for God. And we're like, ah, just tone it down. This is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, we, we, we don't have to get that excited about God. Really? You know, but, but we, we've all sort of felt that way sometimes with a new believer. And actually we, as, as ones that are, are solid in the faith or we've been, been believers a long time, we should learn from that passion of a new believer. Because that is the passion we should all have. 
And, and that is the passion that needs to be contagious. And so Paul here is dealing with a group of, of really new believers and somewhat new believers. And he says, don't quench the spirit. Don't put out that fire. Sometimes people will come into to church and we'll be together and say, I have this new idea. We could do this ministry and reach people for Christ. And it can be easy to say, well, that's not how we've done it before. Uh, we tried that once 25 years ago. It didn't quite work out. And what are we doing? We are quenching the Spirit. To not quench the Spirit means being open to hear ideas from each other. Do you realize that every believer at Village Bible Church is here for the purpose of Jesus Christ? And God has put every believer here for his purposes? And there are times, and this is why as you're going through the shape class, those that are in that, when we look at ministries to to do, we look at what gifting God has placed in the body, not what do we want to do and trying to shove some gifting into it. No, we want to know, okay, what is God putting on the hearts of his people in this place at this time? And I've seen some of you come up with some crazy ministry ideas that did amazing things for Christ. And that if we had shut down because, oh, that doesn't fit our paradigm, that doesn't fit our model, we don't have a structure for that. And so we want to be a group that is willing to let the Holy Spirit give us new ideas. And and that's scary, and that's hard, and it's stretching, and it's beautiful and awesome and powerful all at the same time. And so let's think of new ideas. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to work in our, in, our, in our body and in our ministry. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes we can quench the Holy Spirit in other ways. Sometimes someone starts a ministry, they're all excited, and often the people starting a ministry are more the entrepreneurial type, right? They're more just let's get this going and passionate and get it going. Chances are the person starting a ministry, they, they are probably not the most administrative-minded, just the way it sometimes works in ministry and in business and everything else. And so sometimes we quench the Spirit by administrating a ministry to death. And, and, and if that's your ministry and you want to administrate it, great, go for it, administrate it. I'll even help you with Excel. But, but if it's not our ministry, we don't have to come and criticize and, and come alongside and say, you know what, if you did it these ten ways differently, it would be better. That's a way we quench the Spirit Because really we're saying it would be better if you did it my way. It would be better if you did it in a way that that I think we should do it. You know what? Maybe I should just take this ministry over. No, Paul says don't quench the Spirit. Don't quench the Spirit. I heard a story once about a, a father who was visiting his father's grave. And it was a family thing, and they were bringing their, their family together. And his nephew, little nephew, was coming along. And they stopped by a florist on the way to get some flowers. And the nephew said, I want to get a balloon. I want to get a balloon for, for Uncle so-and-so. And everyone's like, great, that sounds good. And, and this, this nephew was so excited, little boy. And he comes out with this balloon. And they had a choice when they saw his balloon. Do we quench the spirit? Or do we just honor the Spirit again? And so they went through the, the, um, to the graveside, and he's carrying this balloon that says, Get well soon. And they went with it. Because sometimes you can be right or, and quench the Spirit, 
or let something go, and I'm not talking morally, but, but say, okay, maybe we should just let that nephew run with it and show grace. And so as a church, my heart is that we don't quench the Spirit here, that we realize the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and every believer has a contribution to make to the ministry here at Village and to each other. The next verse goes on, and, and Paul gives the, the next, he gives a real specific way that they were doing that. He says, do not despise prophecies. Do not despise prophecies. Now, this one, we get, we get into the weeds of all kinds of different theology. And so you're going to hear a little bit of my take of what this word means as we compare Scripture with Scripture. But prophecy, we know, was one of the spiritual gifts. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12. We see it in 1 Corinthians 14. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 14, 3, Paul writes, On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And he is describing, he's dealing with the gift of prophecy. He's describing what it is. Now, we think prophecy is telling the future, right? That, that's so many times what we think. But the word for prophecy actually was more foretelling rather than foretelling. Foretelling is, is predicting the future, which sometimes prophets did by the word of God. But really, it was applying God's word to current life. That was prophecy. Applying the word of God to current circumstances, to the heart. And so someone with the gift of prophecy has an uncanny way of saying, this is God's word for you. Thank you very much. This is God's word in this situation. Now, there's a difference here. And and one of the reasons, I think, why there's so much debate over whether this is a gift or not or whether gifts have ceased or not is there actually are two different kinds of prophecy. And, And we have prophecy in the Old Testament of those that were writing the inspired word of God. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and some of those, that was a gift of prophecy where they were writing the very words of God through the Holy Spirit and and that was a definitive oracle from God himself. But in the New Testament, everywhere where you see the word prophecy is used and see it as a gift, it is used as less than God's very word but somebody applying God's word to life. So when, when it's someone sharing the infallible word of God, there's not a lot of questioning you can do, right? They're like, this is the word of the Lord. Well, I don't like this part. This is the word of the Lord. In the New Testament, the gift of prophecy, it's more of, this is how I see God's word applying to your life. But in every case, including this case, it says, test the word. Test the gift. See if it is in accordance to Scripture. See if it is good in this one. Now, if it's the inspired Word of God, do we need to test it? No, you and I don't get to choose what's the Word of God. But in the New Testament, the way that this was used is people coming alongside and bringing a word of the Lord as a word of encouragement to someone else. And so that's why Paul writes... The word who, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. They are bringing God's word to people in an encouraging way. You know, some people will equate, and, and I think this is a good, good way to equate it. Some people see the gift of preaching right now as part of the gift of prophecy as we see it practiced in the New Testament. 
because preaching should, if, if a church is following God's word, should be directly out of God's word, should be expanding God's word and then applying it to life. And that is the gift of prophecy. So Paul here says, through the Holy Spirit through Paul says, do not despise prophecies. And so was it, what it looks like was happening is people in the church would say, you know what, I think this verse applies, or I, I think God is saying this to us in this time. And rather than hearing it and testing it, they're like, you're wrong. Yeah, I'm the leader here. I don't really need to hear from you. I'll let you know when I want your opinion. And, and, and there was this sense that they were despising this spiritual gift. But this gift has not ended. We know that clearly from Scripture. And, and so Paul says, don't despise it. The Holy Spirit will often bring to mind the truth of God's Word that fits. So we need to hear each other. If, if I'm thinking of application here, I'm thinking, how can we be more open to hearing what the Holy Spirit is putting on each of our hearts. How how do we hear when the Holy Spirit brings a a verse to mind to you that is important, that is vital? I I can't count how many times in the course of the last year now, which is weird to say, with Susie's illness, that, that people have written a card or something with the exact verse at the exact time that has brought encouragement tears to our eyes and helped us through that week. I think that's how we should interpret the gift of prophecy. That it's taking God, it's not creating new words of God now, but it's taking God's word and applying it to life. And thank you for that. Those that have have done that, those that are obviously gifted in that way. Your exercise of that gift has been vitally important in the body of Christ. Thank you for that. He goes on in verse 6, or in verse 21 and 22, point 6, to say, okay, what do you do with that though? Because you don't want people running around saying, I have God's word for you, and I have God's word for you, and I have God's word for you, and you know, God spoke to me, and we're, okay, not me, but singles. God spoke to me, and we're supposed to get married. Or God spoke to me, and you're supposed to give me your car. And so... Paul gives us some guidelines here. How how do we handle this? In verse 21 and 22, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And he's wording it in the general, but it definitely applies to the gift of prophecy that he just talked about. Test, so point number six, test everything with scripture. Test everything with scripture. That's how we make sure that we're not running down a bunny hole who knows where because of something someone said that they said was from the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't correspond with Scripture. Test everything with Scripture. Embrace the good. Eliminate all traces of evil. We don't just accept everything someone says and say, oh, that must be true. We don't want to be gullible in that, but we want to test and discern and verify the character of what is said. And, and, and maybe even as we're saying it, in light that the gift of prophecy as it exists now is, is fallible, and we want to test it with Scripture, often I think a better approach is to say, I, I think this is what God is saying in the situation. I think this verse applies to the situation, rather than, thus says the Lord. 
Because usually when th- someone says, thus says the Lord, they're really saying, thus says Ron, or, or the, whatever their name is. And so we take this with a, a dose of humility and say, I think this is what God's Word is saying. And then we test it with God's Word and with God's people. And we're discerning. But the broader sense of this instruction is to test everything with Scripture embrace the good, eliminate all traces of evil. And this goes beyond gifting. He's using some general words here that says, okay, everything you do in life, everything you see in life, every position, every circumstance you put yourself in, test it. Is this good? Or does it have any form of evil as part of it? And, And... the instruction here is we need to be discerning in all of our lives. This would apply to the entertainment we choose. This would apply, like I said, to the circumstances we're in. This would apply to the friendships that we nurture. And, and, and the, the ones that we're, we're using as just close friendships, there's a difference between that and other friendships where we're trying to reach people for Christ. But where do we let our guard down? Is this a good situation? Or does it have forms of evil in it? You know, are, are, the, are the, the situations I'm in situations that I'd be perfectly fine with God's presence with me like we talked about in Pray Without Ceasing last week? And that's a challenge. That's a challenge for us to order our lives around what is good, what is godly, and eliminate all traces of evil. Now, I'm not saying we, we go and we get a, a mountain cabin or something and seclude ourselves from the world. Maybe in the Sierras, but um, okay. This, this doesn't mean that we will be completely absent of evil around us. But in what situations are we letting that get past our defenses into our own hearts? You know, music is a, is a great example. Music has a way of getting past our natural cognitive defenses and entering our lives in a different channel in our brains. And so things can get into our lives through music that would never get into our lives through, through a verbal communication. And it's just one example of where we need to guard ourselves. Like I said, entertainment is like that. I, I've used the story where Susie and I have gone back and watched some shows that we were watching 20 years ago and we're like, we watched that? In the moment, it was comedy, and, and, and humor has a way of getting past some of those defenses too, right? We didn't even notice in the moment, but some distance and perspective, we look back and we're like, especially as our kids are watching it with us, we're like, yeah, this is a great show we used to watch. And we're like, nope. <laughs> Changing that channel. And we need to be on guard. Are we discerning between forms of evil and what is good? Test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Paul ends his his series of checklists of pleasing God by saying, don't quench the Spirit. Don't get in His way. Honor what He's doing. Listen to what He's doing. Don't despise prophecies. And that one could even expand into any gift that that is exercised in the church. Um, Are we... Do we put some gifts higher on a pedestal than others? Do we honor the ministries that people are doing? And then finally, test everything with Scripture. In your notes, there's, there's again a way that you can um, just evaluate yourself. One to five. Five being, yeah, I'm doing pretty well on this. One being, Lord, help me work on this a little bit more. 
<clears throat> and that, um, that is just some good ways to begin to evaluate where we're going to let the Lord work. Because the very next section says, basically, this is not your own doing. This is the work of the Lord in you to work on these checklist items. So we jump to 23 through 28. And this is where Paul says goodbye. Finally, he's been trying to for a while. But he finally says goodbye. And we have five more points out of this one. (laughs) And so really you can think of it as goodbye and may God keep working in your lives. And he gives a final call to live for God, a final call to to let God work in our lives. And we're just going to break this down a couple verses at a time as well. Verses 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And as we look at elements of Paul's goodbye, they're just great elements for how we interact with each other, how we pray for each other, how we think about each other as we, as we say goodbye each week and then come back together. The first thing out of those verses, 23 and 24 is Paul gives reassurance of God's work in them. Reassurance of God's work in them is the element Paul starts with. He reassures this church that he loves that God is faithfully at work and will not stop in each of them. And we can just sort of read through it, and and it's just rich with, with things that are encouraging. He starts by saying, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. What a wonderful description of God, right? The God of peace. Uh, the God that gives His gracious goodness to us. That, that gives us an ability to have a life of peace with Him, reconciled with Him, and that gives us an ability to be reconciled with each other. He says, may the God of peace Himself, He Himself is working in us, sanctify you completely. And the word for sanctify is to make holy through and through. Make holy is sanctified, the completely is through and through. That there be no part of our lives that isn't touched by the work of God making us holy. And what a way to follow what he just said about test everything, hold to what is good, and and eliminate every form of evil. And then he says, God himself is the one that's doing this in you. God himself is making every part of your life holy. There is no part of your life that God doesn't want lordship over. Hear that today. There is no part of your life that God doesn't want lordship over. He wants to be part of every single aspect of your life. Every moment of this coming week, whether it be work or whether it be family, whether it be friends, whether it be just your thought life alone, He wants control of it. He wants influence over that. And He deserves it because He is Creator God. One author said, there's no part of your life that God doesn't look at and say mine. What a beautiful description of what he's doing. What I love about this is really what we see in these verses combats legalism. We can take a list like we just went through and say, I've got to work harder and check off every item on this list and then I'm a godly person and I'm pleasing to God. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. 
There, there's, there's some challenges to if that's even possible. But in reality, through a relationship with God himself, God then changes us. And so we open ourselves up to God through relationship. His power and his Holy Spirit comes into us and sanctifies us and changes us. That sometimes is, is, is very difficult as he reveals things in our life that we have to turn over to him. Sometimes it may be things we don't even realize. And he's maturing us through circumstances and difficulties and we don't even realize it. But God is at work. And what a wonderful reassurance Paul gives this church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Then he goes on to say, may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the next phrase, he's saying, may your whole self, every part of yourself, every part of your life, every part of your being, and he splits it to the immaterial soul and spirit and to the material, the body, all of that, may God keep that blameless until the coming of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about the coming of Christ, right? That Jesus is coming back. And so the idea here, especially of blameless, is above reproach. It doesn't mean sinless. But it means every sin is taken care of. There's forgiveness for sin. It is covered by the blood of Christ. None of us will be sinless this side of eternity. Right? And, and, and so we, we could, if this meant sinless, we'd be like, well, that's not happening. I know my thought life this week. I know what I said in anger this week. But what this means is that because Jesus died on the cross for our sins, And because his blood was enough to cover every one of our sins that we've committed in the past that we could commit in the future, if we turn to him and repent, that blood, that payment for the sin covers it and pays for it and forgives it. And then we can be blameless. And so here the Holy Spirit is saying, God will work to keep your soul and spirit and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is wonderful assurance that He is the one holding our salvation. He is the one that helps the perseverance of the saints, helps us stay with God until Jesus comes back. And we don't have to worry, well, what if I'm not quite right with God when Jesus comes back? Maybe I won't get in. Maybe I won't be taken and I'll see everyone else raptured up and I'm here alone. He's saying, no, no, if, if you are in Christ Jesus, he keeps us and he keeps us blameless. And again, Paul's giving a wonderful assurance here. Live for God, be in relationship with him, see what he does. Just a, a side note about, about theology here. Sometimes this verse is used to argue for a trichotomist view. And, and for those that don't know what I'm talking about, just listen along for a minute. For those that do, I think we need to address it. Um, a trichotomist view says we're made up of spirit, soul, and body. A dichotomist view means spirit and soul are one, the immaterial and the material. And there are all kinds of things written about this. See, Paul says the soul and the spirit are different. The problem is we have other verses where he says they're the same. And, and really what this looks like is just a, a phrasing that says your whole person, your whole being. And so you really can't use this verse to jump to that kind of theology, which in the end, that's, a, that's an argument that I'm like, that actually doesn't make a whole bit of difference anyway. Because our soul and the spirit both are immaterial and refer to our internal being. 
And so don't get caught up in discussions like that on this verse and miss the point that God is keeping our whole selves blameless because of the work of Jesus Christ until Jesus comes back. And so Paul is reassuring the church. He ends this part of the reassurance in 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Paul is saying, okay, he's going to keep you until Jesus comes back. He's guarding your salvation. He is making you more like Christ. He's the one doing the work. And at the end he says, and I guarantee it based on his faithfulness. I guarantee he is doing this. He will surely do it. And it's a reminder again, ultimately this is God's work and we're participating in it. We're opening ourselves up to it. We certainly can hinder God's work in our lives. We certainly can do things that, that keep Christian maturity from happening. And, and we certainly need to do our part to participate in what God is doing, but that means opening ourselves up to relationship with Him. And He will surely do this. One of the, the things I think of of that is if you are pursuing God, He is changing you to Christ-likeness. And so... There are times we feel dry spiritually or can feel dry and it's like, I don't see what God's doing. I'm not even sure if if He's at work in my life. He is. He is. In fact, often coming through the dry times is where God is teaching us some of the more valuable lessons of perseverance and what relationship really looks like. And it's not just emotion, but it's, it's a choice to follow God. Rest assured, village, if you are pursuing God, He is changing you. He is changing you. Philippians 1.6 is a verse that I love that, that goes with this. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, at salvation, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Saying the same thing, and we see this throughout several scriptures. God secured your salvation. It's not by your works. And it's not by your works that you're going to stay saved. It's, it's His work of His Spirit in your life. Take comfort in that. Take joy in that. And one of the things I think of is, as we hit these two verses, reassurance of God's work in them, is this is Paul saying goodbye, and this is his prayer for them. You know, what if we, we prayed for each other this way? Or what if we thought about each other this way? And as we leave today and go wherever we're going, throughout the week we're thinking, you know what? I'm praying that God is helping Phil grow this week. I'm praying that God will reassure Phil of his sanctification. I'm praying that, that God will work that same way in Chuck that Chuck will know the power of God this week and he will see the growth that God is having in him. What if we thought that way about each other during the week? Wouldn't that be cool? How can you not love each other when you're praying for each other that way? Or or caring for each other that way? And, And yes, we should care for physical needs and that's all very important. But our challenge out of this is do we care for each other's spiritual needs? Do we even think about it? I hope we do. One of the applications out of today is to think through a couple people and say, how am I going to pray for them to follow God this week? How am I going to pray for them that they would know God's work in their lives this week? 
That's the first thing out of Paul's goodbye. Second element of Paul's goodbye, verse 25, he asks for prayer. He asks for prayer. Now, he's several times throughout 1 Thessalonians prayed for them, but here he just comes out and says, brothers or brothers and sisters, pray for us. And, and this is a beautiful example of vulnerability. This is Paul the Apostle saying, I need you to pray for me. I need you to pray for us. And he did this often. He did this in Romans. He did this in Ephesians. He did this in Colossians. He did this earlier in 1 Thessalonians. And, and what's interesting is most of the times he's meaning pray for us in our journey, but also pray for us for boldness that we share the gospel. Paul's life was never separated from the sharing of the gospel. It, there just was no such thing as Paul and the gospel. It was always merged into how can I be about the gospel? And so he asks for prayer. And a couple things that I think of when I hear this, number one, that means he understood the power of prayer. He understood that his ministry would only succeed with the body of Christ praying and lifting him up because the power for whatever we do must come from God through prayer. I also see sometimes as leaders, it's, it's tempting to, to not share some of our needs, to not ask for prayer. You know, I, I, I've heard some leadership seminars that say, well, you should never, as a leader, never have friends, never admit weakness, never ask for prayer. And then I would add, okay, never follow Scripture. No, uh, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And Paul says, pray for us. And so do we, as we come together, can we drop our guard enough to share prayer requests with each other? And I know we do that on our Wednesday prayer time and, and we, we do that in a lot of different ways. But do you have one or two people that you can share the real prayer requests with? You know, don't, we all, don't we all have sort of prayer requests we're willing to share in public and prayer requests that are, are private, our own thing? Make sure you have a couple people you can share those private things, the deep things, the real things. I'm struggling in this area. I'm hurting in this area. I'm angry about this and struggling to get over it. Let's follow Paul's example and ask for prayer. Not just say, I'll pray for you, but ask for prayer. Next thing, verse 26. The next element of Paul's goodbye is he encourages a close, welcoming community. He encourages a close, welcoming community. I've rephrased the verse a little bit. The verse is, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. Now, for those of you that are non-huggers, this is an alternative. No, no. Um, we've talked about this in, in first, Second Corinthians, rather. But this is interesting that it keeps coming up. And we have to understand some of the culture behind this. There was a culture that one of the ways you welcomed people was to kiss them on the cheek. Just saying that. And, and you would give a kiss on the cheek. That was part of welcoming someone. And that was expected. In fact, Luke 7.45, Jesus comes in and, and he says, and he, he's at dinner at someone's house, never got a greeting or anything. And he says, you gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Because they were the Pharisees were complaining about the woman that came in and was kissing Jesus' feet. He's like, you didn't even do what was culturally appropriate. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. 
And, and we can go a lot of, I mean, that, that passage is talking about something else, but it shows us the culture that this was expected. You greeted a friend with a kiss on the cheek. It represented reconciliation if there were issues between you. It represented unity. It represented community. This is why Judas's betrayal with a kiss was so awful. Because that kiss represented trust, unity, reconciliation, and with it, he sacrificed Jesus' life. And so we have to understand what a kiss represented and then realize it may not represent the same thing in our culture. But what other ways do we represent that same thing that, that's a warm welcome, that represents unity, that represents community and reconciliation? Especially in this case, you had a church of all different classes. You had poor people, you had rich people, you had Jews, you had Gentiles. And so how do you bring them together in unity and community? There's two parts of it, I think. Number one, we have to be genuine in reconciliation and community. I I can say up here, and, and we will, we can talk about in our culture probably a handshake or a hug or an elbow bump or a pat on the back. That all is, is an appropriate substitute or, or appropriate way of expressing it now. But not if it's fake. Not if our heart isn't about the reconciliation, isn't about the unity. And so what Paul is here, here is really commending or what he's, he's challenging them to is to stay close and let nothing separate you. To be united. We see sometimes the kiss used as reconciliation. Remember Joseph and his brothers, and, and his brothers are coming to Egypt, and they're getting food, and, and finally when the big reveal happens, in Genesis forty-five fifteen, it says, Joseph went and kissed his brothers. Just on the cheek, a cultural thing that said, we're unified. We're okay. Prodigal son comes home. The father went out and the text makes a point of he kissed him because that represented unity, getting past what was in the past and forgiving and moving forward. And so, yes, for us, culturally appropriate, hugs, elbow bumps, handshakes, none of that right now, maybe just a wave. (laughs) But the principle is, who do I need to be reconciled with? Am I harboring anything that keeps me from welcoming someone in this room warmly? Maybe a comment that was made last week or unfortunately five years ago sometimes we remember. Can I put those things behind and forgive them and leave those up to God and warmly welcome each other as part of the family? What I'd like you to do is in your notes, if you're you're keeping notes, just do a a couple things. On this point, I'd like you to just write the initials of someone. No one look at each other's notes. Write the initials for someone that you need to forgive. That you need to leave hostility at the foot of the cross and practice the heart of this command and not just the action of this command. At the same time, I want you to add a second set of initials of someone, not not that you have a problem with, but just someone that God would put on your heart right now to make sure they feel welcome. And maybe you need to look around and see who's not here. Um, But who's someone that God would put on your heart to make feel welcome? Listen to the Holy Spirit. Write down their initials. 
and then do something about that this week. Make sure they feel welcome. And so we can read these and say, oh, that's a great ending, or we can put them into practice, and I hope we put them into practice. Last two elements of Paul's goodbye. A good goodbye. Verse 27. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And you're probably saying, well, what are you going to get out of that verse? This is really a call to help each other spiritually. It's a call to help others spiritually. And actually, he changes to some very strong language here. He changes to the singular. He probably has taken up the pen and is writing these last two verses himself. And he says, I put you under oath, or I urge you, I challenge you before God, before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers. And it's a challenge to make sure that the the people that receive this, that the leaders are watching out for the spiritual growth of everyone. And not just, I got a letter from Paul, that's cool, he likes me, Um, we're friends on Facebook, and um, I'll pass on what you need to know when, when it's time. No, he says, make sure it's read to all the brothers. Make sure it's read to everyone in the church. This is for everyone. And possibly there was a fear that only a few would hear it. But he says, watch out for each other spiritually. I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers. And again, as we say goodbye each week to each other, our spiritual commitment to each other doesn't end when we walk through those doors or when we leave the parking lot. As a church, as a family, we're committed to each other's spiritual walks and spiritual growth every day. And so I need to be thinking about my brothers and sisters and how can I help them grow with God and and how can I pray for them spiritually as we've already talked about, but how can I be part of, of each other's spiritual growth? How can we be part of each other's spiritual growth? And finally, he ends with a benediction in 28, verse 5, or point number 5 there. He prays for God's grace on them. He prays for God's grace on them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And that's just rich, uh, rich in greeting. It's, it's instead of have a good day, it's may the grace of God be present in your life every moment. Isn't that, isn't that much more meaningful? <laughs> yeah, have a good day. Or may the grace of the God who created the universe, of Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, may His grace be on you every day, every moment. And again, I think about that, and, and I think about as we separate as a body, do, am I that intentional of, of wanting God's grace on your lives every moment? And I love the, the, the not just sentiment here, but the discipline of seeing each other as believers and understanding our role in each other's lives. As we leave today, it's not just have a good day, but may you experience God's grace every moment in your life. And as you experience it, may you pass it on to others. You know, one of the, the, the ways that we can put this into practice, dads, let me talk to you guys for a minute. Dads with kids at home. There are two really really important times in your life with your kids. When you leave for the day and when you get home. I'm not saying the other times aren't important, but how you leave and how you return mean the world to your kids. When you leave, 
consider praying with them. Don't just say goodbye, I'm off. But give, give some sort of prayer. Give some sort of blessing over their day. Asking that God move in their day. It lets them know that you really miss them, that you really care, and that you'll be thinking throughout the day. And then it's not here, but how you come home, dads, is everything. Take that drive home from work or the walk from your home office right now to just clear your head and be ready to be home when you get home with your kids. But what a great way to leave our kids is to say, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God will be over every part of your day, that you'll see God work in your day, and then to send them off, or, or then we go. Five ways that, that Paul really says goodbye. Five really important parts of a good goodbye. And the first one is that he reassures them of God's work in them and that God is continuing to work. Then he asks for prayer, and there's some mutuality there. He encourages a close, welcoming community. He calls each, each one to help others spiritually, and then he prays for God's grace on them. May we, in our relationships, say goodbye well and think about each other during the week and not just on Sundays. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, our Father, thank you for your word for something as simple as a goodbye that we can learn from, that we can put into practice, Lord God. I pray that um, our care for each other would go beyond Sunday morning or, or whatever activity we're at. But Lord, that you would build a community of faith that are brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the week, that we are encouraging each other, that we are encouraging each other with your word, Lord, that we are praying for each other, that we are caring deeply about each other's spiritual walk. Lord, may we be your church and shine well on you. Thank you, God, in your name. Amen.